real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today we're going to be talking about the city of Edmonton some municipal politics and public safety. For that, I have Councillor Tim Cartmel on the program. Councillor Cartmel is a born and raised Edmontonian. He is a professional engineer by trade and a small business owner of which focuses on designing and managing building projects. In 2013, he received the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta Summit Award for Community Service. This award is presented to individuals who have made significant improvements to a community in need through efforts in the engineering or geoscience profession. And in 2014, he received the Engineers Canada Meritorious Service Award. And he was first elected to Edmonton City Council in 2017, which is where he continues to serve today. So welcome, Councillor. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, you know, Usually we kind of start with talking about the guests so people kind of get to know you, your background. Um, so if you could kind of maybe tell us a bit about yourself and how you, you grew up and what Edmonton was like. Yeah, well, certainly, um, well, I was going to say it was a different place, but I don't know that it was altogether different. I, uh, so I was, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Edmonton, uh, went to school here, uh, went to the University of Alberta here, uh, received a Bachelor of Science and Engineering in 1988 and a master's degree in engineering management in 1995. And I uh, used both those degrees to support my career as a design engineer, first of all. I did a lot of, stru- well, I, I'm a structural engineer, so I did a lot of design work in the oil patch up uh, Fort McMurray. I've uh, been to every Enbridge uh, piping station and pumping station from here to the U.S. border. Uh, I did a lot of that sort of heavy industrial stuff. Uh, you know, about... Uh, 1998, I started my own firm mm. and uh, have been self, I'm self-employed by taking on employment gigs from time to time since then. So I've always kind of bounced back and forth between those two worlds. And it's been uh, extremely rewarding. I uh, have done a fair bit of, through the years, a fair bit of um, forensic engineering, sort of investigative stuff. So uh, collapse investigations, fire reconstructions, flood reconstructions, those kinds of things. So I've uh, been really lucky. I've been able to get involved in a lot of projects from a number of different perspectives, either projects I managed or work I designed. Um, My wife is also a born and raised Edmontonian. We met in those university years. We have three grown children. They're all uh, U of A graduates and off on their various careers. and so that's uh, that's very. Um, I guess we're you know I guess we're proud of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the best way to put it. They're, you know they're wonderful contributing adults, and I'm really proud of them. You know my wife is too. So uh, we've always made our home here in Edmonton. Uh, sort of my early career, uh, doing a lot of volunteer work with the engineering profession, and that led to those um, awards that you mentioned. I you know I, you don't do those kinds of things for awards or. Notoriety, it's nice to be acknowledged, but uh, by far the greater value in, in that early volunteer work and then what evolved into community volunteer work, coaching teams and 
serving my community league and those kinds of things uh, was the, the opportunity to get to know people and to contribute to the solutions that our community was looking for through various, uh, whether it was building the local rec center or you know, rebuilding the local playground or, like I said, coaching those teams. Uh, always very rewarding uh, to contribute back to the community and just uh, know that you left it just a titch better than you found it. So, mm-hmm. uh, appreciated that. I, and it was through those community activities that I got to know um, uh, former councillor Brian Anderson and uh, uh, our MLA for the neighbourhood I live in, which is Riverbend, uh, Dave Hancock. And when uh, councillor Anderson decided not to run again in 2017, they both asked me to have a look at running and uh, okay. see if that worked. So that's kind of how I ended up uh, doing this. Uh, <laughs> so here I am. Yeah, bit of a lengthy summary of what I where I came from, but here I am. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, you know what? And even when you're talking about the awards, uh, yeah, you know what? I, I think most people, and I know a lot of police officers, it's, it's, uh, you're not looking for the awards at the end of the day, but it is a nice cap on or conclusion to knowing that the effort you have put in uh, has really made a change, right? Yeah, yeah. That, those, I, I think those were predominantly uh, in recognition of my you know, using my engineering knowledge and, and expertise to help community um, matters, and you know, largely in support of the uh, Twilliger uh, Recreation Center, which was uh, mm-hmm. something that I got very from a community perspective and rallied and lobbied the city to uh, build the first recreation center in 25 years. Um, and uh, just all of the work that was involved in that. And, and uh, you know, I... It's funny because in those very early days, I was really only interested in finding a way to get a hockey rink closer to my kids who all played hockey. So we didn't have to drive across town all the time. Yeah, that that center, I learned so much from the people in my community that talked about how this would be, this center would be greater than the sum of its parts. It wasn't just a swimming pool. It wasn't just an arena. It wasn't just a fitness center. It was a it was going to be the heart of the community, mm-hmm. and it's it is that today. Uh, you know, just last night was the first uh, farmer's market of the season and it's in the parking lot of the rec center. And, you know, you walk through that rec center and through that farmer's market and it's going to be a three hour trip because you're going to see the whole neighborhood there. It's, uh, uh, it is, it has been such a valuable part of our community. So it's, it's really uh, satisfying to know that you've been a part of something and whether you get acknowledged or not, it doesn't matter. So many people that I work with, didn't get those awards and don't sit on council and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but uh, but they made far greater contributions than I did, and uh, and so it's it's a sort of a living reminder of what community can do when it comes together. It's very cool. Well, and when you build those, uh, I think people just naturally find more uses for it. Like you're saying, you bring the farmers market, right? It's never. I don't think anything like those big rec centers or hundreds of millions of dollars aren't usually built in mind with that as the first. Uh, use in mind. <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, you know, uh, since that since that um, building was built, we've added a community theater to the the high to Lillian Osborne High School, which is right next door. But it's on that it's on that campus, so the mm-hmm. community continues to work to to continue to develop all the, the remainder of the campus that the rec center sits on. Uh, you know, the, in the future, and hopefully in the not too distant future, there'll be a new library building uh, adjacent. Uh, I'm hoping to um, to use some of that space for some uh, affordable housing uh, work uh, 
and there's a potential for an artificial turf field on one corner of that campus. So cool. Still lots to do. And uh, and I'm I'm thrilled to be able to support those things from from this seat. It's not my seat, it's the community seat. I'm just I'm just sitting in it right now. Mm-hmm. And so further, not just the, the development uh, of that rec center facility and, and surrounding land, but uh, repeat that that experience and that investment in that uh, uh, community building function, you know, in other neighborhoods that I have the privilege of representing is, is really the goal. Well, uh, one thing I was wondering too is like, so when you kind of move into uh, the municipal politics, can you talk a little bit about what it's like running uh, for a ward? Because I know, especially in Edmonton, it's kind of all over the map when you see the numbers of people that run in certain wards. So some of them are like 15 people, some are six. So can you talk a bit about your ward, what it was like going through the process initially in 2017, and maybe if you know, the next time you ran, was it a, a any different experience? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, you know, my experience has been different in, uh, you know, I've, I've participated in two elections and um, we didn't have that 10, 12, 15 candidate experience in our corner of the city. And I, uh, I'm not quite sure what to attribute that to generally. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, Councillor Anderson served for 19 years and won six elections. And mm-hmm. So perhaps there is a, um, uh, and, and, and I mean, he, he hit all the marks in terms of supporting his community and being involved, being available, being knowledgeable, having the answers uh, that, you know, would come up at the community meeting or what have you. Uh, you know, he's just a fine example of a very participatory and representative councillor. And I, uh, Perhaps the neighborhood just knew that that was that responsibility was taken care of, and there wasn't necessarily, a, mm-hmm. you know, a ten or twelve or fifteen people that sought to make it better or to to replace the councillor because the councillor was doing a fine job. You know, so there, there might be something to that. I don't really know. Uh, in my first election, in the first election I participated in, there was uh, two. There was another fellow that had done a lot of similar work in community building and, and that kind of a thing. And he was quite well known. Um, there was a local realtor who was, who had name recognition and, and had some political affiliations. Uh, and then there was a young man, a very uh, a gregarious and uh, charming young man that uh, I think wanted to get his name out there. And, uh, and uh, then a fifth person that was, was kind of late to the party and, and not as widely known, but uh, mm-hmm. a very thoughtful young man. So we had, I think, I think anybody kind of looking at the field probably saw that there was, you know, at least three pretty strong candidates um, when you're talking about a political election, and maybe that, maybe that persuaded some not to bother. Yeah. Um, so in any event, I was I was lucky enough to win that first election. In the second election, I only had one opponent. Um, uh, and I, I would like to think that for the most part, people were again happy with with uh, my work and how I represented them. I didn't, I didn't for a moment believe they agreed with my every utterance or vote or thought. Uh, but I, I felt like that the majority of people supported my approach to this work, and uh, and so I won a pretty a pretty healthy majority. Uh, which I'm very thankful for, but that comes with a heavy responsibility. You know, it means that people have pretty high expectations of you. So I, mm-hmm. I remind myself of that every day that there's uh, that uh, there's a lot of people counting, 
facility, you better show up for the work. So is it, uh, when it comes to the municipal side of things, uh, is it mostly just getting out there in person and talking to people? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's largely name recognition. Uh, and I think that cuts both. I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons we have 10, 12, 15 candidates, because, you know, your name doesn't go on a sign with a party on it that, that tells people to some degree what your belief system is or what your platform yeah. is. Or, you know, what you're right. You know, whereas, I mean, how many times have you had this conversation with your friends? You know, are you voting for the leader or are you voting for the local candidate? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think in, in some instances, the local candidate just doesn't matter. You put any name on, name on the sign. If you're voting UPC or if you're voting NDP, not much is going to, for some people, not much yeah. is going to change. But for other people, if they're, if they're not, if they don't have a heavy party affiliation, then they're talking about the person perhaps. But, um, the field is pretty closed, right? It's mm-hmm. only closed to the to the to the parties that are involved. At the city level, it's not. It's open to any person that that you know has lived in the city for six months and is eighteen years old. So mm-hmm. uh, it makes for a wider field. Um, I do think, though, that because of that, particularly in an open election, uh, if you're going to win, you there is no shortcut to getting in front of as many people as you can. Yeah. Uh, you, you need to hit critical mass of people that know what you stand for and and see that as what they want at the city council table. Uh, a sign isn't enough. Party isn't enough. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, there's nothing that says, okay, so who's this Tim guy? There's no party behind him saying this is what we do. It's it's just me, right? Well, and that's what I was thinking too, is like, we're looking at the provincial election that's this month. And, you know, I, I drive by all the signs on the, all, everyone's lawns and stuff. And I'm thinking, like, I've never seen that person ever anywhere. I don't know any of these people. Also, I like, uh, you know, Rachel Notley or Danielle Smith. But for the most part, most of them, it's like, I don't know what they do. You're voting for the party. But that makes me think then that maybe municipal politics is a little less divisive, especially when you're in the running for a ward. Now, was it the last one where uh, some people have a history? They've been in there for a while. So some people can kind of pick at those things. But for the most part, it, I want to say it, it appears on the surface less divisive, but maybe you can give us a bit of insight to what goes on behind the scenes. Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, because it's it's independent, because there's no parties involved, that means there's no whips involved either, right? You're not, mm-hmm. you know, there's no such thing as a confidence vote at city council, right? Uh, you know, you, you, you don't. You don't force yourself into an election if, if something doesn't pass, like you do at the party level, right? Yeah. So um, there's nobody whipping you, nobody telling you how to vote, nobody, no, no leader saying this is what you're going to do. Um, and so because of that, if there's a particular thing that you support or that you that you want a motion you want to make or a, you know a project you want to get funded or supported, then you know it, you need to go and build support for that. Mm-hmm for that work or for that thing that you're trying to get approval for, which means you have to build relationships with all of the, or at least a, a healthy majority of the other counselors that, uh, that serve. Uh, sometimes you can see sort of blocks or, or uh, cohorts set up. And I think we were seeing a bit of that on this council, to be perfectly frank. Um, there was certainly a little bit of that on last council. Sometimes it's familiarity. You know, you've built a relationship with somebody over the years. And, and so you, know what they're about and, and uh, whereas you might not with, with somebody new. 
Um, sometimes it's a shared ethic. Sometimes it's geographical. So, you know, there's the. It, it is certainly different. There is you do have to go and build a coalition and build support. Uh, so you know, and, and so it just takes a it, t- it takes a different ethic or a different approach to uh, to winning the day. Yeah, uh, it's not just enough to have the most seats. You gotta you gotta have the most support for a particular thing, and that can ebb and flow, right? You know, you you talk about fifteen things on an agenda, and you might be very very firmly aligned with several people on the first item, and very much not on the next item. So there is um there's a weirdness where you have to kind of let it go, <laughs> item to item, yeah, and uh, try to try to judge these things on the merits. So. It, it's certain. I've never, I've never run and, and been part of an, a party politic uh, construct, so I don't know for sure. But that's my understanding, my perception. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and when you're out there uh, trying to go to all these events and meet people, you don't have like an entourage that travels with you. I imagine it's no. mostly you because you're within the city. Yeah, I, you know, uh, so my office. I'm in my office now at City Hall. Um, this is the only office I'm providing. So, but, but, uh, you know, I represent a, a rather suburban ward. Like the closest point to city hall in the ward I represent is the south end of the Quinnell bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I represent people that live all the way down on highway 19 in, uh, in what used to be the County of the Duke. So when I'm trying to meet people one-on-one or when, when constituents are trying to get some face time with me at a community event or at a reception or at a town hall that I host or those kinds of things, um, I'm trying to do as much as I can to bring that stuff to the community uh, because the community just, just does not have the capacity to get downtown to city hall on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. It's, it's too hard. Um, but I am, so that means I'm on my own, right? I, uh, sometimes I have a staff very, very rarely I'll have one of my staff with me, but you know, they work eight to six every day. So uh, they're not necessarily there on the weekends or in the weekends. Um, sometimes my wife helps me out, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really it's, it, you're on your own. Um, you don't have an entourage. You, uh, uh, and it's, it's somewhat tiresome. that right? you, it's a lot of hours and a lot of demands, but I'm not complaining, but it's, it's much, much different than a, an MLA or an MP that really only is in their particular legislature or parliament half the time or less mm-hmm. that has an office in the community that they can work from and can meet people at and, and has the opportunity to, uh, to do those things on a more regular basis. So, yeah. So it's, it's different. Well, and when I, I I've had, a Justice Minister Tyler Shandro on the show a couple of times. So I've chatted with him about it and the, the chief firearms officer, Terry Bryan. And just, it's, it's fascinating uh, how the travel that's involved for them and the, how they kind of split their time between two cities. Well, Terry's always on the road, but uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Shandro, like he splits some time here and some time in uh, Calgary. And then, yeah, you come down to the municipal side of things and it, it's a, just like a whole different beast of things to deal with. But I mean, you got the Terwilliger Rec Center. You could just have all your events there now. <laughs> well, and I could, I suppose. But I, you know, but, you're, but even at that, I mean, that's not easy for people south of the Hendy to get mm-hmm. to. And there's there's roughly thirty thousand people in the ward I represent that uh, live south of the Hendy. So, uh, you know, there's some of those communities down down way down south have very few amenities. And, you know, you have to get in your car to change your mind in a lot of those places. And it's 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 
you know, which, which is, you know, something that I, again, I want to work towards. I, I've had those conversations with those ministers and, you know, and, and how rarely they get to their home riding if they live from away, you know. I mean, my, I live in Edmonton, obviously. I, my local MLA also lives in Edmonton. Uh, so she can be at the ledge in the afternoon and do the ledge work and be, you know, in her home with her kids or, or in the community mm-hmm. on the evenings and weekends. I don't know how you do that when you live in Calgary or Medicine Hat or Grand Prairie or, or you know, points farther away than that, uh, points that don't have air connectivity, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. It must be an intense challenge for those people. I, I feel for them for sure. What, um, What's kind of like a, a typical day for you then? Is it mostly out in the community or is it just a ton of meetings? Well, so it's uh, the, the work of council is split up uh, in broad strokes. It's split up amongst three standing committees. So there's four councillors on each of those three committees and then it rotates, you rotate through. Um, the, essentially, the work of committee comes up to council to be essentially not not relitigated or debated but uh, vetted and approved mm. uh, so that's that's the basic model now you know sometimes discipline fails us and it, it does get relitigated or, or those kinds of things but that's generally the approach so you you know you've got those standing committees in week one week two will be uh, more periodic committees so for instance I chair utility committee and it will meet five or six times a year audit committee will meet five or six times a year uh, and those committees so they meet less frequently but the same sort of thing happens where work is discussed and vetted and mm-hmm. uh, at the committee level and then it comes up to the council then week three is a council week where typically we have a two-day council meeting and we'll have a public hearing uh, which is where all of the land rezonings and, and the development conversations kind of happen then on Thursday and Fridays is when you do other things. So I do a lot of uh, work with the Edmonton Metro Region. I, I uh, Mayor Sohi is the primary contact, and I'm the alternate on most of those things. Uh, some of my colleagues will get involved in Alberta Municipalities Committees, and, and that's what Thursday and Friday is for them. Okay. Uh, and then you get other things, whether it's uh, cultural events or police graduation. Uh, happens, for instance, a couple of times a year on mm-hmm. Friday afternoon those kinds of things. So all of, that's a long, long way of saying that I spend most of my time, most days uh, in a council function. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I do get a day that I don't have a lot queued up, then I spend that day in the community doing some things. But in order to, to actually meet the people that I represent uh, and bring government back to the ward, that means I'm, I'm in some sort of a meeting or conversation or, or town hall or community league or something like that probably three nights a week wow and then friday and or saturday and or sunday can have several events community type events where you're uh, where you're representing the city where you're meeting people so for me i try to keep sundays as clear as i can uh because that's the day i do all my reading of the agendas for everything that's coming the following <laughs> week Jeez. and try to spend some time with my family so it's um, it's all of seventy hours a week anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least the way I describe it is the way I do it. Yeah, that's a true seven day a week job. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's not a forty hour week job. Some of my colleagues that are in other cities, you know, for instance, the the city of Saint Albert, their counselors are considered part time, mm-hmm. 
and they're working 40 hours or 50 hours a week. So, wow. you know, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it is, it is a 70 hour, 70, seven day a week, uh, job. We get a few weeks off in the summer. Um, where essentially we don't have any meetings and we get a, a few weeks off at Christmas where we essentially don't have any meetings. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're off. It just means you don't have to be in a council meeting for a while. Do you get bothered on your phone a whole lot? Like, it, or I shouldn't say bothered, <laughs> but do you get a lot of messages and calls from less, people out in the community or, or city councilors? Or? Less now. Most of it is by email, by email and through social media. Uh, but it's, it's constant. Sometimes, you know, and I have two staff that do a, that essentially triage a lot of the initial contact. Mm-hmm. So if it's my garbage got missed or the stop sign got hit, well, then they'll just push that to the appropriate person. But if it's somebody that wants to know how I voted or why I voted or what I think of something coming up, then that's for me to, to respond to. Okay. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be over 100 emails a day. Wow. Uh, in fact, frequently it can be over 100 emails a day. I'm usually... If I ever get if I ever get everything answered and everything attended to, which sometimes will happen on a long weekend, right? You get to you get to Monday morning, it's like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm caught up. It doesn't last very long. But, uh, but again, that's okay, right? I'm not a complaint. It's just uh, people are engaged and and they want to know what we're doing, and that's that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean that's great. You want people to be engaged, otherwise, uh, yeah. I think you would have not much to do. But uh, one of the things I was going to ask a little later on, but maybe since we're kind of talking about similar stuff right now, is um, the, all those surveys that go out on the City of Edmonton website. So I know there was the public spaces uh, one recently right. about open air or open drug use, um, loitering topics such as those. Uh, when people fill those out, do the results come to council or how does it work? I guess essentially is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So the reason work sort of is done at committee is because anybody at all can come and register to speak and take five minutes to share their views with, uh, with that committee. So that committee will have four counselors and the mayor as members. And usually for bigger topics or, or, you know, more wide ranging and, and, Maybe important is not a great word, but more important things. Many of the other councillors will participate in the committee meeting. So they don't have a vote. They do have the ability to listen in and ask questions and that kind of thing. So, um, and the reason we do that is to have that very organic, very grassroots conversation so that every, anybody and everybody can have that opportunity. So we're, we'll get a report. What's happening with that particular, as, as an example, that particular set of bylaws is being reviewed by city administration to update them, identify gaps and overlaps, kind of bring them into sort of contemporary thinking, uh, and then present them to committee for discussion and, and some debate and allow members of the community to come and speak to them. And then the whole thing gets put up to council mm-hmm. to vote on to decide whether to pass a bylaw or tweak it and then pass it or send it back, any of those choices. Um, those surveys that are done are are presented to us okay. uh, as an attachment to the report that contains the revised bylaw and the interpretation and advice of city administration. So long way of saying absolutely, yes, it does come, but it comes in context, right? Mm-hmm. It gets, it, it gets um, aggregated. Well, and who comes up with the surveys? Because some of the questions on it, yeah. like I, so I saw this one on the public uh, places bylaws and 
the questions kind of, I don't want to say we're out of touch, but I'm not sure how else to put it, but it basically was like, how much drug use is okay in public? A little bit, a medium amount, or a high amount? And all I thought was, where's the answer for none? Yeah. So yeah. I, I, who comes up with these uh, uh, questions? Well, so you touched upon a thing that does generate some frustration, absolutely. The, um, the surveys are uh, compiled, designed. Uh, the questions are, are written by city administration. Those surveys do not come to council for vetting. The first time we see those surveys is the first time you see them. Mm. And it's when they're posted on the website or pumped out to the those that have signed up for to, to take the surveys, that kind of a thing. Uh, and I've had the same frustration, you know, that we get, you know, leading questions. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes the predisposition of the person in administration that wrote the questions shines through in the way the questions are asked or, or you know, they're, they, be, they become leading. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, you've touched a one on a sensitive one, right? Like how much how much open air drug use is enough? And for those that want to say zero, there's not a choice for zero. You have to put that in the comments, and you're hoping that someone that is summarizing the comments, your comment comes through, right? And, yeah, and there's that so, too. Right. So in some instances, I've done my own surveys, like, and I've done them through my own website. You know, I there was uh, most recently there was around budget. You know, I did this in October because mm-hmm. I had the same general frustration that the, the way the administration was asking the questions did not give you an open-ended amount of solutions. Mine, mine was not perfect either. I'm not a survey writer. I'm not a political scientist. I'm an engineer, but I was trying to give people, you know, a range of responses and, and a simplified set. And even at that, people were upset with me that I didn't give them the choice that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So, um, there is that happens, and it and it frustrates me. I'll give you a, a different example. When we do infrastructure work, I remember that uh, way back when, when we talked about, and I was on council at the time about the roading of the LRT by Bonnie Dumont. Uh, the question was put by one of the councillors there: What would it take to elevate that LRT so that there would be no conflict with traffic at White Avenue, right beside White Bonnie Dumont? And the report from administration from that it would cost two hundred and twenty million dollars to raise it, and that was like that was in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen, an enormous amount of money mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, and yet, my feeling was immediately that that's a push pull. And, and you know, you're getting an answer that pushes you to a conclusion. You know that that makes it almost impossible for you to support the conclusion that you want to support because. It's just going to cost an astronomical amount of money to do that, and I and that's a frustration for me. Where um, there's not the data to back up the response, or there's not the data that backs up the way in which the question is being asked. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, so on that one, I, you know, more to your point, I get a lot of people saying that we've got to stop. You know open air drug use thing. It is not okay. It is never okay. Mm. And um, you know, I think we need to listen to that response that comes, at least in my experience, uh, from a majority of people, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Particularly when we're talking about you know, in the transit realm or in the headways or in the public parks. Right. Well and you know what that kind of um, maybe puts us on to one of the topics I was going to get to was talking about public transit and the safety on public transit. Um, I was reading through your blogs 
which I really like. And they're very critical. Like, uh, I, I honestly didn't expect them to be, um, so forward with like, there's vomit on transit and there's uh, drug use and people can be unpredictable and it creates this atmosphere of, uh, uh, fear. So that was one thing I really appreciated about the blog. And I, I recommend to people and I'll put the link up when I, uh, put the show up, it'll be in the description. Uh, link to the blogs, but um, you know, kind of, what is your take on where transit is right now, and then some of the solutions that are coming out? Because we see a, little, uh, there's so many uh, ideas thrown out there, and I'm all for like, hey, if this solution, let's try this for a bit. If this isn't working, we got to move to the next thing. Um, but you know, where what's kind of the state of things as you see it right now? Well, you know, so that's a very good question. So, and you know, when I, when I look at, you know, where transit ought to be, and I kind of start with that. So I go, you know, when I, like I said, I've lived in Edmonton my whole life and the transit system has never been particularly good. Mm. Uh, and, and, and not to go too far down a rabbit hole, but I mean, that, that is linked to a bus strike that happened in the, I think of the very late seventies or early eighties, which sounds like a long time ago to you, I'm sure. But it, it uh, essentially uh, was the coldest winter in years, and transit went on strike, and the ridership went on half, went to half, and it never recovered. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's maybe that's revisionist history. But I, but I remember as a as a teen, as a young adult, as a university student, transit was what you took when you had no other choice. Mm-hmm. Right, you were stuck on transit, and because it, because the service was so poor, it wasn't it did not provide a competitive advantage. Uh and, you know, when we first built the LRT out to the Coliseum from downtown and that, there was a, somewhat of a competitive advantage because it was termed high-speed right anyway. You know, when I when I look back at those days, I never feared for my safety riding the bus, unless maybe the bully from the school I went to and I had beaked off a little bit was was going to, you know, beat me up at the bus stop. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. It's a pretty modest fear, right? That those threats never really were followed through on, obviously. So... You know, I um, I look at our transit system now, and I talk to parents now. I talk to people I represent now, and they're they're very very fearful. And I, you know, I don't know that their perception, quite frankly, resembles the the level of risk that they might be encountering. But you know, when it comes to ridership and confidence and getting people to pay money to take that service, perception to some degree is reality. Mm-hmm. So we need to do some things to reassure people that when they are on the transit system, you know, specifically in on those spaces to use it as a conveyance from one place to another, that they're going to be able to do it safely. And I don't think that most people have that confidence. And I don't think we've done enough to provide that confidence. I don't think we've reacted in the right way when things have gone wrong, when we've had some of these, these incidents, to reassure people that, that, that it's not okay when these you know, when these events happen. Um, so I, my blogs were all about, we need to get back to transit being a safe place for people to use it as a transit system. Well, and I guess that does not solve all of the problems for the people that might be in those spaces. Yeah. But, you know, let's, and, you know, in my world as a, as an engineer, you know, um, when you're, when you're building a building, you break it down into, you know, what are we doing today and what are we doing tomorrow? And I think we should take the same approach. Like this is this seems like an unsolvable problem when you talk about downtown and poverty and 
drug use and mental uh, health and lack of a healthcare system and different approaches. Like it just seems overwhelming, right? So let's break it down into a few pieces. And for me, the first piece is make transit safe Mm -hmm. for the 95% of the people that are there that want to use it and feel safe. And then let's talk about solutions for others. Yeah. And I guess that kind of goes in tandem with you have the safety aspect. We also have the convenience aspect, which I mean, they're building more lines and more stops. Um, but for the public, they have to see at what point does the positive outweigh the negative. Right. That includes everything, the safety, the convenience. Does it get me right beside my work or do I still got to walk 10 blocks when I get downtown? The other part too is even on the security aspect. So I know this, uh, this information is from working some of these transit shifts that they had police officers going in and doing six hours in the bus stations and then uh, walking some of the platforms. And it was after they had uh, got rid of the LRT beats. So going down, I remember once we walked down into uh, Coliseum LRT and they had a security guard down there. So he's wearing like the highlighter jacket. You can see him for a mile. Anyways, we got, we got to trying to talk with the security guy He'd been in Canada for two weeks, didn't speak English. And it instantly, the first thing I thought was, how are you security? Like if you call 911, you can't even communicate with people. Yeah. And then we were running into issues of people, um, like the security guards are essentially an extra set of eyes. They're not going to go hands-on. They're not going to stop anybody from committing violence. They're an extra set of eyes. But sometimes the security guards were getting chased by these groups, by these gangs that were in there. So it's like, well, okay, that that's not working. So do we need to go back to uh, police being on the trains? Which I know that's an idea that's out there right now. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts around the police being on the trains and the buses in those areas? Well, I... I mean, essentially what you're saying is those security uh, personnel are not effective. And I completely agree. I mean, really all they are is a set of eyes with a cell phone to call for help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who's providing the help, right? And and so we've got our own transit police officers, which uh, and up to a point a couple of months ago, perhaps three, maybe three months ago, time eludes me, but for a, for a significant amount of time, the ethic was... Uh, enforcement as an absolute last resort. Mm-hmm. So education and information. Uh, so if someone is openly using drugs or someone is clearly in distress, you know, from a mental health perspective or, or you know, might be in a place where they might harm themselves or others, uh, we were essentially, our ethic for our, our employees was don't intervene uh, from an enforcement perspective. And anecdotally, you know, those officers then just, didn't engage at all. Yeah, they knew that they, if they, if they, and what were they going to do? Well, they were going to write a ticket because they're bylaw officers, right? Mm-hmm. So what's really, what really were they offering? And I, you know, my understanding, and this is not universal. This is, and this is anecdotal, is that there were, you know, there's a lot of those people that were pretty demoralized. You know, on the one hand, you're getting intimidated by the gang members that are, you know, the bad guys in that space. So you, you can't help the people that truly need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're not going to get supported by your administration if you actually do something that says, you know, that, that enforces the rules or, or returns a level of accountability. You become demoralized, essentially. Oh, well, you're not changing it at all, right? Yeah. But you're watching it happen every day. So, and again, that's a, that is a generalization. I'm sure it's an overgeneralization, but I heard a lot. So 
what we need is those, is that beat cop back. We mm-hmm. need we need beat cops on our trains and on our platforms and in our downtown. Uh, and we we need them now. And that's a frustration of mine. I'll be I'll be quite clear. That's a frustration of mine with the police service that that this council has repeatedly said that. Yeah. Uh, and has put me back back into those efforts, and it, we still don't see very much of it happening. So, you know, I, 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 there's sort of two things I think we need to do in transit. One is return the beat cops back, and the other is uh, essentially fair enforcement, because fair enforcement can lead, and emphasis on enforcement, can lead to identifying those that are there for no particular good reason and essentially flush them out of the system. Well, and you give a good example in your blog about knowing... Uh person who was a B cop. Yeah. And I think there's a, a very big misconception out there that police instantly go to enforcement or like that's the only thing they can do is enforcement. When, uh, you know, I work with our gang team and we go out, we have tons of stakeholders that we talk to, all the venues, casinos, lounges, nightclubs, everything. And 99% of our job is talking to people, educating people. Um, we don't want to spend an entire shift with one arrest and doing, you know, 20 pages of paperwork and it's a whole process to lodge them. Like th- this is not what police look to do first and foremost. Most of it is talking to people, just get them uh, resources or where they need to go and just keep the peace at the, at a bare minimum. So I think that's a, um, a huge misconception out there in, and, and it's in a lot of the, I'll say the narratives that are put out there in the media Yep. that get printed out there. So it, I I think also that from a policing perspective, they're not looking to be the end-all be-all like every single function that's out there. I mean, people signed up because they want to help in the community. They want to go after the real bad guys and enforce a criminal code. And that's that's kind of what they want to stick to. I think there's a lot of confusion too around what function do the police play in our society? So are we going to be everything to everyone? Are we going to be partnered with everyone? Or are we just uh, are we just there for enforcement of criminal code? Like, I mean, it could be a whole bunch of things, but it's almost like that question. I don't know if that question's ever been asked, but maybe it's something to kind of get back to and, and formalize, hey, right now in this year or in the next five years, this is what we want our police to do. These core functions. And then we're going to have other services on the outside of that. So, Well, I think that, you know, the, the, the underpinnings and, the, and the, the long history of police services, police forces, as they are, or used to be called, mm-hmm. is a paramilitary underpinning, you know, and it is law and order and there to enforce, right? That's, that is, you know, what I think is, has not happened is that, you know, the evolution to a police service being, and, and I, these are Chief McPhee's words, or at least I heard him, he's the one I heard say, that, you know, that police force is an extension of the community. It's, mm-hmm. it's no longer paramilitary force that's there to crack heads. It is there as an extension of the community to, you know, essentially enforce, and I use that term loosely, you know, some level of accountability. That does not mean taking people to jail mm-hmm. or writing them a ticket or putting them under arrest or harassing them other places. But what it does do is, you know, they're there to, when they are present as beat cops, they are there to engage. They're there to understand. They're there to help. They are there to, uh, 
you know, serve as a reminder that there's a certain level of accountability, a certain level of expectation about how you conduct yourself in the public realm. Uh, and like I said in my blog, defecating, urinating, vomiting, open drug use are not, do not meet that standard. Yeah. So now there's people that, that can help, but engage in those activities. And are we, nobody I represent, nobody I know wants to see somebody persecuted and punished for their mental health, mm-hmm. uh, troubles or their addiction troubles, which often become, you know, two parts of the same puzzle for those individuals. But they do, they want to see help provided. And that's, you know, that is the next step. I did it to me. It's, uh, returning that level of expectation to the community. And I, I honestly believe that the, the vast majority of the people that we're talking about know that that expectation exists, mm-hmm. uh, but they're going to get away with what they're going to get away with. So if we reestablish some, you know, some sort of operating rules, and we use, you know, a, a more community policing imperative to identify those that are really need, you know, in need of assistance and support and help. And then the next thing is we have to make sure that we have a place to to uh, uh, and a system and a and a range, uh, a spectrum of solutions, because this is not ever going to be one size fits all. A spectrum of solutions that uh, those individuals that really need help and support and uh, assistance will get it will get what they need uh you know in a caring and compassionate way um mm-hmm. but i am i would uh, want to be really clear about this i am not ever about persecution of persons uh, because they have found themselves for whatever reason in a very unfortunate situation but i am in favor of reminding people that just because you find yourself in a very unfortunate situation does not mean that you can lose all capacity and, you know, carry yourself in a way that is a, a threat of violence to the people around you. That's, that is not acceptable. And I think that, um, so on the first part of that, I think everyone would agree with you uh, that the, um, yeah, we're not out there to, you know, someone suffering from mental health that's homeless. Uh, we're not out there to uh, throw them in jail. It's the latter part where I think the system now is, basically turning everybody that um, I'll call is an offender into a victim. And we're forgetting the community that is harmed behind that. So when people are, are out there doing the drug sales, doing the violence, all of a sudden it's all about how did, how did they become a victim and they're let back out. And this gets into like a bigger discussion on bail reform, but I think that's kind of been lost. We've almost gone way too far with the pendulum to the one side where all the offenders are now the bad guys and we forget the the community that they're harming and the victims who called us uh, in the first place. If that kind of makes sense. Well, I think we have, we have de-emphasized uh, those, uh, the experiences of those that get harmed. Those that own the businesses that have to replace their windows every couple of weeks mm-hmm. as an example, right? Um, but I would also say that that I, you know, we, uh, I don't know the proportions. I've, you know, again, I've heard statistics like, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of, of really awful activity can be attributed to something like, you know, 150 individuals in Edmonton. Yeah. And we know who they are. And that's where we get into this conversation of, you know, catch and release justice systems and bail reform. Mm-hmm. And, 
those kinds of things. And there were examples were put out a few weeks ago about, you know, um, you know, some very violent crimes committed both in Calgary and Edmonton from by people that were, you know, prematurely released mm-hmm. or perhaps unduly released, and you know, based on their criminal record. I don't know that, uh, like those proportions. I don't know if it's ten percent or ninety percent, but the police do. Mm-hmm. And if we have the cops in those places, the police know who are the truly harmful people are and who the who the who those that are really vulnerable are. Yeah. By being there every day. And uh and so that's why we need to return to that ethic. It is not again, it's not a dragnet, it's not a sweep, it's not a you know a arrest everybody in sight. Yeah. And it's to get away from that language that says, you know, everybody is a victim or that everybody is a criminal, yeah. or that, you know, these things, you know. Um I think we've got a real mix and a real mix of circumstances there. Uh, and the only, virtually the only ones that are going to be able to, you know, determine with assistance, you know, who needs help and who needs uh, punishment are going to be police officers that have spent time in that realm. Not mm-hmm. somebody rolling up in a car and, and making those judgments in a few seconds. Somebody who's on that platform every day and knows who populates that platform. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Um, so we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I want to make sure you get a chance to tell people how to uh, oh. follow you or look into your whatever. Uh, you got to blog, you got a website, you're out there in the community. How do people find you? How do they follow you? Yeah, that's kind of unique. My my uh, blogs all sit on my website, which is uh, timcartmel.ca. Uh, all one word, pretty easy to find. Uh, I'm also on uh, Facebook and all the other social media platforms. Uh, you can usually find me just by searching Tim Cartmel or uh, Councillor Cartmel, I suppose. Uh, but I would direct you to the website first if you're interested in reading those blogs or, or uh, uh, signing up. For, I, I put out newsletters from time to time, and I also host you know, online town halls and things like that. And that is generally communicated through... Uh, through our website, through my website. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, you know what? I want to say thanks for coming on. Hang on the line for two seconds. I'll say bye offline. But um, sure. we'll, we'll get you out of here so you get a little bit of a break before your next meeting. <laughs> thanks very much. And thanks for uh, the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Great.